But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. I feel like we always start the same way. I feel like you've said this <laughs> after the same intro many times before. Oh. And you've, you haven't taken any steps to change it. Mm -hmm. What would you like to do differently? That's what I thought. I'm fresh out. That's what I thought. The Australian Open is over. And I have to say I'm relieved because you will be going to bed at more normal times getting more sleep, and being, hopefully, just a nicer person all around. Wow. I mean, a healthier person. Wow. That's what I meant. Do you know what he told me these past two weeks? He said, I look forward to getting the best of you again at some point, and that you don't just save it for tennis Twitter yeah, at three in the morning. He's giving you all, in, uh, in other hemispheres, the best of him while I'm sleeping. Right. But, you know, you are not watching the tennis at night. Somebody has to for the purposes of the show. And so I get up at like two in the afternoon and you want to be like yapping, yapping away. Yappa, yappa, yappa. <laughs> Just like, why, why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you in a good mood? Like, can you let me breathe for a minute? That is false. Accurate. Sorry, false. Accurate. So, Naomi Osaka is a four-time slam champ mm -hmm. like Kim Clijsters. Novak Djokovic is an 18-time slam champ, like Martina and Chrissy, although we don't compare men and women's titles here on this show. Why don't we start with the women's event? Start with the final. Naomi beats Jennifer Brady, a first-time finalist, 6-4, 6-3, in about an hour and 15 minutes. There were some big swings and momentum in both sets, but watching it, I never got the impression that Naomi was very vulnerable. Throughout the match, I didn't think that Naomi was actually going to lose this final. I disagree. Really? I think that when it was 4-all in the first set, when Jennifer Brady had fought back from being 1-3 down, got it back even at 3-all, and then 4-all, at that point of the match is where anything could have happened. Had Jennifer won the first set... We could have had a much more extended match like we did in New York, this being a rematch of their U.S. Open semifinal from last year. But instead, what we, we saw happen was, like she has throughout this entire tournament, Naomi Osaka playing the big moments really well, and Jennifer Brady did not quite get up to the challenge at the end of that first set. Right. Each set felt competitive, Brady went down 1-3 right away, fights back to 3-all, then she's at 4-all, she has a break point on Naomi's serve, didn't convert. And so once Naomi is able to save that break point at 4-all, and Jennifer kind of gifts her the first set with that service game, that's when you really felt like this was a foregone conclusion now for Naomi. She speeds out to a 4-love lead in the second set, Five points away from winning the match before Brady breaks and eventually gets the, the set back to 2-4. Naomi eventually winning the second set 
for both women, what are some of the takeaways from this tournament for you? For Jenny. Jennifer. Jen. I think she, it's, it's, she it's, confirmed it was Jenny. It's Jenny. As a first-time Grand Slam finalist, she fought. Some things worked. Some things didn't. She made a lot of nervous errors. But she did fight within each set. So I think she can take away... I mean, the fact that this was a great tournament for her, that she had really impressive wins, that she admitted she never even expected to be in this position as a a college player from UCLA who left before graduating to go pro. She didn't see herself as a Grand Slam runner-up, and now we're here. And she was, you know, within a match of winning a major. Something I like about her, maybe doesn't pertain to her tennis specifically, but she doesn't come across as this stereotype of the ugly American. Mm. She seems super nice, culturally aware, not afraid to go spend months away from home in Germany training to better her, better herself. Mm. You get the sense from listening to her in interviews and from listening and watching how her colleagues talk about her that she's a really good egg. Yeah. She's one of the fittest players on tour, so she knows she always has that to fall back on. She was a super quarantiner, by the way. This is, you know, this is the success story of those players who were forced into that hard quarantine. And so her career has taken this incredible upswing since early 2020. She was doing well before the break. She makes her first Grand Slam semi in the U.S. Open, plays a classic, makes her first Grand Slam final in Australia. Well, this is after she started the resumption of the season with a win in Kentucky Mm -hmm. and then makes a semifinal, plays arguably the match of the year at the U.S. Open and then comes back again in 2021, building on that. Her ranking is now at number 13, which feels not high enough for the, the past few months that she's had. I haven't done the math, but I saw somebody who purported to do the math say that she would be number 10 if this were normal ranking situations. Okay, okay. Naomi in her speech said, I told everyone who would listen that you were going to be a problem. (laughs) And here she is, being a problem. Naomi, I mean, to to answer your question about what Naomi can take away from this, uh, I mean, the sky's the limit, right? On hard court, she doesn't have to play pretty tennis. She can make mistakes. She can grit herself through matches we knew that you know she's done that in all of her slam runs i mean it is a good time to be naomi osaka like what can you say she's won what four of the last six hardcore slams am i doing the math right there 2018 us open and then the 2019 australian open then she doesn't win 29 us open she doesn't win the 2020 australian open but then she comes back and wins the 2020 U.S. Open, and now the 2021 Australian Open. You, you seem very confused what? by that. Okay, I, I was trying to do the math on my fingers, but yes, you're right. Which is incredible. I think it, it positions her squarely as the best hardcourt player in women's tennis right now. Something also to keep in mind is that the majority of tennis that's been played upon resumption has been hardcourt tennis. In fact, the majority of the tennis since the start of 2020 has been hardcore right, tennis. Right. 
the traditional clay season was canceled. We got an abbreviated one. We didn't have any grass season last year. Naomi didn't play Roland Garros. So she feels like the dominant player on tour right now. And she is. And on top of that, you saw a lot of the folks who played well during that time last year play well again at this Australian Open, including Jennifer Brady. Mm-hmm. Victoria Azarenka being an exception there, losing in the first round. But Serena Williams, there again, semifinals. Naomi's, I think what is making her so dominant on hardcore right now is that her serve and her first strike are the best in the game. Like, no, nobody is, is matching her at this right now. And on top of that, she is able to overcome some of the flaws in her game with just the belief that she's going to win somehow. The match against Muguruza was down two match points, came back to win playing practically flawless tennis for the rest of that final set. And to me, that was... I assumed she was going to win the entire tournament at that point. You've been talking about her privately to me as being inevitable this entire tournament. Mm-hmm. Leading into the match against Serena, you're like, well, what do you expect's going to happen? And I've been trying to tell you along the way that nothing about Naomi Osaka currently is inevitable. And we saw it time and time again in this tournament. The match against Muguruza, such small margins, yes, she called upon something otherworldly to get her out of that situation. But she was there for the for the beating in that match. And the reason why I think that is there are still deficiencies in her game. Mm-hmm. As strong and as great as she is with the serve and the first strike, like you say, there are still improvements to be made in her movement. It's something that she is actively working on. Her and Vimfisat have been working on her movement toward the net specifically to close out points. And you see that she's able to move more quickly laterally on court and, and do things that she hasn't been able to do in the past. But it's still not optimal movement, right? Mm-hmm. right. Like there are ways to exploit her on the court. And she's still subject to, I don't know if it's lack a lack of concentration in spots, but, you know, making errors and making errors in spurts. So the scary thing about this is that she can do things to actually improve her game a lot. She can do a lot of things to improve her game. (laughs) Which will make her so dangerous. And clearly she's motivated to do that because she's worked so hard on her fitness and movement already. You know, we've seen the improvement since her first Grand Slam title. The next step, of course, is to excel at other surfaces. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, right? Let's look at this Australian Open. She has joined that category of players who can somehow find that second wind, that extra gear, when needed. You know, people like Serena and Novak and Rafa, they all have it. And so not to say that Naomi is a goat or she's going to be a goat, but she has this scary mental edge right now that can sort of push her over the top. I know you just said not to get ahead of ourselves, but looking forward, and this is me thinking this given that we've played almost exclusively hardcore tennis in the last year or so. How does Naomi now transition to first clay and then grass courts? You would think that given the nature of her game, the big serve and the first strike tennis, that she'd be tailor-made for grass courts. That hasn't been the case so far. I think it's a tragedy just how few grass court tournaments there are in the world. We've had a few added 
in the last year or so. Of course, we didn't get to have the Berlin Open last year because mm. of COVID. But there are few opportunities for a player like Naomi to really master a surface like grass that might not necessarily come naturally to her, even though you'd think her weapons would suit the surface. Right. When you play on it, what, three weeks a year? And it's not like everybody has a grass court in their backyard to practice on mm-hmm. in the off season. It's not like she's terrible on clay. No, she's I had mean, some Im- improvements over the last couple of years in terms of results. Is it going to be a something where she just completely levels up this year and <laughs> solves everything like a genius? I don't know. That's probably unlikely, but it it is the thing to look for in her career going forward. I know a lot of folks are looking at her and saying, wow, she's clearly the next Serena. There's a lot of comparisons between the two of them. Of course, they've now played in two Grand Slams, the first one being Naomi's first title that much talked about 2018 US Open. Both black women on tour, that's going to happen. I think some of maybe the, the initial wariness of getting behind Naomi was focusing her as a threat to Serena, as a threat to her legacy. Mm. I've been seeing this a lot in many different fandoms. Whenever somebody is identified as the one to take the mantle from this person, then then members of that fandom become a little bit gnarly. <laughs> I just want to say with respect to Serena and Naomi, for Naomi to get to the level of Serena Williams as far as Grand Slam titles... She's going to have to do an absurd amount of winning. Even if she plays till Serena's current age 39 years old, she's going to have to win 30% of all the Grand Slam tournaments over the next 16 years. And that means that she's going to have to be winning French Open. She's going to have to be winning Wimbledon's on all surfaces. You've given us more math to do. Yes. Have you checked it? I have checked it. Okay. You know, that that is... Something for me that that just puts into perspective just how much winning and just how great Serena Williams is. It's not going to take just somebody being great to get there. It it just isn't. So I say for now, let's uh, put a pause on any of that fear-mongering, any of the comparisons to Serena. Where Naomi is right now is a four-time Grand Slam champion. Not many people have done that. She's tied Kim Clijsters, <laughs> no. who's gotten four. She's one behind Sharapova and Hingis. And then above that, you get into the the uh, Justine Enna and Venus Williams realm. And she's still just 23 years old. Mind you, then you compare what Serena had accomplished by the time she was 23 mm-hmm. years old. It's, it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around. Bottom line is, Naomi Osaka is rising How did we get to this final of Jennifer Brady versus Naomi Osaka? We were looking forward to these big rounds of 16. We recorded, I think, shortly before they happened. We did a twitch during the quarterfinal, Naomi versus Shea which we thought was going to be more interesting than it was. It was not good. It was a 6-2, 6-2 win for Naomi. Wasn't a whole lot of fireworks going on. Uh, Suwe made a lot of errors, seemed quite nervous. Serena beat Simona Halep in straight sets, winning these long points, scrambling right alongside Simona. Everybody was nervous, right? The army was very nervous before the Simona match, but Serena was going in with a 9-3 record against Simona. 
Well, they were nervous because of the last time they played was the 2019 yeah, Wimbledon final. Of course. And that was not good. Just was not good. <laughs> no, no, for no. For no. Serena. And there's been so much talk about what actually happened and how that final happened. And I came out on the side of Simona just playing that good in that final. I don't know if you finally come around to that. <laughs> I I have moved toward it because my initial stance was that Serena was just really bad that day. But I think Simona will never, ever in her life play a match like that. They, I think she trapped lightning in a things, bottle. Both things were true that day. Yeah. We get to this match and, you know, Serena does the business. There's no other way to describe it. She was dictating points. She was in control of most of the rallies. And worst yet for Simona... She was hanging with her from the baseline in all of these long physical rallies. <laughs> Some of them absolutely absurd. The level of fitness displayed and still agility. It would make a follower of Serena giddy to see that. It made <laughs> Serena herself giddy. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've seen her that pleased with herself after a performance in years. And same thing in the match versus Sabalenka. There was a lot of running. There was some giggling at the end of long points. And Serena showed why all-out power is not all, not the way to beat her. You know, Sabalenka has incredible gifts, like incredible athletic gifts. She misses a lot. She didn't really miss that much in that round of 16 <laughs> match. Interestingly, after that quarterfinal beating of Simona Halep, Serena is just talking and talking and talking. She'll answer any question that anybody asks her because she's just on cloud nine. She's telling you about the stuff that she and Patrick did leading up to this tournament. She's saying that the level of fitness that she's displayed over the last couple of years was embarrassing for her in a lot of spots. She actually used that word, embarrassing. And they, she had told us that the Achilles injury had really been prohibitive in terms of her ramping up her physical fitness and getting back to the shape that she desired. And she was finally able to get over that Achilles situation in the offseason and show up in Melbourne, the, the fittest she's looked in four years. And so after beating Simona, she's on top of the moon. Is that the way you say it? On top of the world. On top of the world. <laughs> and heading into this semifinal match now with Naomi Osaka, you get the sense that maybe this is the most even footing that they've been on coming into a match. That, that there's the potential for fireworks. In the other two quarterfinal matches, Jennifer Brady beats Jessica Pagula in three sets, and Carolina Muhova beats Ash Barty 1-6-6-3-6-2. Let's focus on this <laughs> match a little bit here. Barty was up 6-1, 2-1, absolutely rolling over Muhova, who did not seem herself, was just not providing a lot of resistance. Muhova takes a medical timeout, that has been much discussed and much criticized by the mostly male commentariat. She said something in her post-match interview that made people say like, oh, was she, was she faking? Or was this something mental that she needed to take a break for? And what she was trying to describe was dizziness, mm -hmm. right? Lightheadedness. Like she actually did need a medical break. How people took it was, oh, I just really wasn't feeling myself. So I decided to, you know, walk in the back for a little while. The The difference in how this medical timeout is discussed versus some other more male medical timeouts is stark, right? 
also, it's not that players can just say, I'm taking a medical timeout. They request to see the the medic, the doctor, whoever it is that comes out. And they are the only ones who have the authority to decide whether a medical timeout is actually needed and will be taken. Right. So to then lay all this at the feet of the players is, it's misguided. And the fact that she started winning right after that is, uh, I mean, maybe the medical timeout worked. Do you, do you know what I mean? Maybe that showed that there was actually something that needed to be addressed. When Ash was asked about it, of course, baited about it in her off in her post-match press conference, she said, you know, I should have done better. Like, I, I clearly let that distract me, and that's on me. She didn't take the bait and blame her opponent. Now, of course, Miss Muhava has been the comeback queen at this tournament. If you recall... Mm-hmm. She came back from five love down in the second set against Karolina Pliskova to win the next seven games and the match. She comes back here against Ash Barty. And then in the semifinal, she looks to be coming back again against Jennifer Brady. <laughs> of course, in the other semifinal, that was what you just alluded to, Naomi versus Serena. It was not the match we had hoped for, anyone had hoped for, unless you wanted a steamroll. It, was a, it wasn't great. Like, it just wasn't pretty. It To me, as a Serena fan, I always believe that she can win. But it was getting really tough to believe early in that second set because she wasn't holding serve. I, I mean, we couldn't buy a first serve. making a t- She couldn't not make a forehand winner. I think there were like 12 forehand errors before she hit one winner. It was a bad day at the office. And I was surprised that she wasn't able to dig and find more answers against, you know, a power player like Naomi. Mm-hmm. Right. You look at the score in this match, it's 6-3-6-4, and you think, well, wow, that was pretty easy. When in fact, the margins were pretty small. Serena was mm-hmm. up two love. She had break points again to go up double break, and she did not take them. How does this match look if Serena is up double break in the first set and is able to relax a little bit more in this situation? How does it look if Serena is able to stain some of these rallies the way she did against Sabalenka? Serena was not being blown off the court in this match. She simply just could not get the ball back in play enough, be it off the return, especially off the return. And then in these simple rally balls. And that was the frustrating part for me watching this match because I do not think that that result was inevitable and I do not think that Naomi was unbeatable in that match. If you look at their no, serving no. stats, Serena even served a, sli- a fractionally higher first serve percentage. I think it was 46 to 45%. Right. But Naomi won so much more of her points on serve because the return game from Serena just was not there. And it was also something that she explicitly was working on. Mm-hmm. Leading up to this tournament, Patrick even said it. He declared it on the <laughs> internet after one of Serena's earlier on wins, that, look, you may have noticed this. This is what we've been working on. We've been working on shoulder rotation, positioning, moving into the ball, the return, smash hit wonder. Mm. And so when Serena loses it emotionally in the press conference afterwards, how I read that is just a complete frustration and bewilderment as to why she somehow ended up again in a 2018 U.S. Open final. 
for right. all intents and right. purposes. It's like, why is my first serve percentage in the 40s? Why can't I beat an opponent whose first serve percentage is also terrible? Why can't I take advantage of opportunities that I would be just crushing people in other circumstances? Why couldn't I have gone up double break? Why is my return so bad? Why am I not able to get into any of these rally balls? Where is the movement that I just was so pleased about against Simona Mm. Halep? And it's possible that as a 39-year-old, you just have bad days. You know, you've worked on everything. Like Gael Monfils has been saying, he feels good in practice and it's crushing because he's not seeing the results on court. So Serena, again, reaches a second straight semifinal in a slam, plays some really impressive tennis to get there, and... She had a bad day. And credit to Naomi, you know, she did not come with her best that day. But she managed to do her job and get the win. Which is what the top players who win consistently do. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to win on days when you're not bringing your best. And it's most important to bring your best in those matches when you need it most. And that's what she did. Right. It just gets harder and harder to summon when you've been out here for so long. So... And no, no talk about the, you know, the R word around Serena. There was a lot of panic because of the way she savored the crowd and gave a big wave before she left the court. I wouldn't read too much into it because when Serena does bow out, it will be very Serena. You know, we don't know how it's going to happen or when, but it will be on her terms, in her style. But seriously... Big up to Naomi Osaka because her draw was not easy by any stretch. First <laughs> no. round, Pavlichenkova. Second round, Garcia. Third round, Anzjabur. Fourth round, what could have been the final, Garbina Muguruza, where she saved two match points. Quarterfinal against Shiesue. Semifinal against Serena Williams. And then final against Jennifer Brady. You know, a lot of folks might be tempted to say, well... Is that really a tough opponent in the final? Yes. For all the hardcore tennis that we played in the last year, Jennifer Brady has been a top three hardcore player, at least a top four hardcore player in women's tennis over the last 12 months. Yeah. We know not to look at the rankings anymore. Muguruza almost beat her. It was almost the end of Naomi's tournament. I mean, Serena in the semis. Who cares that she's number 10? Jennifer Brady, 22? Come on. She's playing way better than 22. At a certain point, we're going to have to move past looking at the rankings to judge the quality of well, somebody's especially opponent. Especially during this ranking system. Not only that, but also the same folks who will tell you, well, she didn't beat a top 10 player, or the same folks will tell you that, well, Ash Barty is not a credible number one. So, like, did right. she have to beat an uncredible number one for it to mean something? Or somebody who was playing like a number one, who has been a number one, who is a multiple-time Grand Slam champion in Muguruza in the fourth round. Would it have been more impressive if she beat Svitolina or Pliskova on the way? No. The argument that needs to be made and continues to be the case is just how absurd the depth is in women's tennis. Yeah. Like, these fourth-round absurd matchups, they're not going away. It's going to be like this for quite some time. And so on that note... We move on to a very different men's tour. Going into this final, Djokovic and Medvedev, I expected a very competitive match. I expected it to be long. I wouldn't have been surprised if Medvedev won, 
considering their hardcore record. But again, so much of this was dreaming, right? People wanted so badly for Djokovic to lose, they thought Karatsev could do it. Come on, this is Novak on Rod Laver Arena for the ninth time. Who's beating him, even with this injury? That's a nice thought. What? To say who is beating him. <laughs> Medvedev credibly could have beaten him in this match. And it was a function of Djokovic's superb play, his incredible serving and returning. Those things are not nothing. But it also is a function of Medvedev playing like crap in certain spots in this match. Spots mm. where he had chances to break, missing fairly routine rally balls. This was not the same player, or at least he was not made to look like the same player as the one who beat Stefano Tsitsipas in the semifinals, who had come in on a 20-match win streak, who had beaten all comers over the last six months. Both times that Medvedev has made a slam final, he's come into it on some kind of torrid streak. This time with a 20-match win streak, and then in 2019, if you recall, that summer he won DC, he won Cincinnati, he had made it through the Beating US Open draw, yeah, and in that final, he still was able to come back from two sets down against Nadal to push him to five. Yes, and it was very sticky late in that match. He was close. Mm-hmm. That did not happen this time. And the, the part that was strange to see for me was the temperament from Medvedev on court during this match, especially the second set. He goes up a break, right away one love, and gives it right back. Like at every turn where he's in with a shot to do something in this match, Djokovic is either able to force the errors or Medvedev coughs up a few. There was no momentum whatsoever for him in this match. And Djokovic played like somebody with a point to prove in this match. He said so before the match that he's just not going to roll over and hand it to these young guys. They're going to have to come get it. Mm-hmm. And they're not. No. (laughs) There's still such a huge gulf. We've been talking about the big three sort of splintering over the past few years. And nobody's beaten them in a Grand Slam final. Dominic Team won against another young guy, Zverev. Well, for the last few years, it's been Nadal Djokovic. It's been a two-headed horse, right? Right. Horse? What is it? Monster? Monster? (laughs) Pony? Mule? You get the picture. Mm-hmm. It's the two of them. Federer, for his part, is coming back in March. Yes. So we, we'll see how he comes back and what shape he'll be in. He's entered both tournaments in the Middle East, I believe, Dubai and Doha. Right? Yep. Yep. Those are coming up soon. Felix led Karatsev uh, two sets to love in, in the round of 16. Karatsev managed to come back from that. Dimitrov looked like he was rolling. He beat Dominic Team in the round of 16. Just met him on a very bad day. You know, Dominic, it didn't seem like he was carrying any specific injury, but he seemed exhausted, a little bit mentally disengaged, which is totally fair. It's not a criticism. It's just that it, it wasn't what I was expecting from him. And after that match, I was bullish on Dimitrov. I felt that Yes, Dominic didn't play well, but Grigor played some of the best tennis I'd ever seen him play. And then he shows up against Karatsev and wins the first set. You're like, okay, okay, this is 
this is cute. This is continuing. And then it just all kind of falls apart for, for Grigor in the middle of that second set toward the end of it. And then it becomes clear that he's carrying an injury. And then it was over in two shakes of a duck's tail. Hmm. Afterward, we find out that Grigor was having serious physical issues before the match even started. And he just knew it was not going to be a good day. Hmm. And then what was just heartbreaking about this match toward the end, in the fourth set, Grigor turns to his box and just kind of shrugs and says, I'm sorry, twice. Oh, Lord. It was just too much. The the headline quarterfinal was Tsitsipas versus Nadal. Nadal was leading 6-3, 6-2. And then what happened? The last three sets, 7-6, 6-4, 7-5, they're close sets. And in each of them, Nadal had chances. Most importantly for him, given that he was coming to this tournament with questions about his back and not having the, the necessary preparation that he would like, what was most important for him was to get this done in three, when he had the chance. Mm. I doubt you will ever find Nadal playing a worse tiebreak than he did in that third set. <laughs> Missing two overheads. like that. It's rare that he misses one, let alone two. And then dumping routine balls into the net. And at that point, Tsitsipas had already started to recapture some of his serving form. And you felt like this could be trouble once that third set went to Tsitsipas. Because coming into this match, Stefanos had shown great form. He had been serving incredibly. And that wasn't there in the first two sets. You got, I mean, you watched the match and it just felt all a little bit too easy and routine for Rafa. And that it wasn't necessarily having to do with how well Rafa was playing. And once Stefanos got that confidence and that swagger in his service game, that's when the ante really was upped in this match. And then like Serena in the semifinal, Rafa was broken at love for his opponent, for their opponents to then serve out the match in the next game. Mm. That was something that I was absolutely floored by in this tournament to have happen within 24 hours of each other. Both Nadal and Serena broken at love to lose a match right afterward. The other two quarterfinals were Medvedev and Rublev and Djokovic Zverev. The man um excited to see Ruby in another slam quarter, but that's I mean, what else is to say about that? I I mean, Medvedev just wore him all the way down. Like Rublev looked ragged in every way by the end of that second set. Mm. Like, this is somebody who now has a big serve, who's been able to, to hit with the big boys off the ground. But for whatever reason, the level that Medvedev brought to him in this match was still a surprise to him. In the semis, Medvedev beats a, a tired Tsitsipas. The head-to-head -head is heavily in favor of Medvedev already. It wasn't a huge surprise. This was the show, man, why don't you shut your fuck up match. Yes. And Djokovic beats Karatsev pretty easily. Karatsev was the first qualifier to make the semifinals of a Grand Slam, I believe. Ranked well over 100. I'm pretty sure I heard Patrick McEnroe say that both he and Karatsev were ranked the same when they both made their <laughs> semifinal runs, and that would have been 114. 
So was Patrick a wild card at that tournament? I, I did not care to pay no. attention enough to what he was saying. <laughs> we will talk a little bit more about Karatsev in another section coming mm-hmm. up. We didn't even talk about the tear. The uh, the torn No, we didn't muscle. talk about So it's Djokovic confirmed after the final that he was diagnosed with an abdominal tear in the obliques, right? So this is a, also called sometimes called a side strain. Apparently, it's the same thing. It could be a small internal tear in the oblique muscles. For regular people, they expect a, a full recovery in like four to six weeks. Djokovic said he was on the table all day, every day, getting tons of treatment to be able to play this tournament. Are you, ask, some, are you some... asking me to speculate wildly about his health? Because I feel like you're trying to get into some mess here. No, I'm wait. I'm do what you want to do. You are part owner of this podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm. I mean, I just really cannot summon up the interest. If I'm being totally honest, the issue here for me is that Novak stays doing the most. Yes, right. It's it's just constant drama, all the time. How do you diagnose yourself with a tear when he did? In the middle of a match? In the middle of a match. He says, they say, the farm says that the physio or the doctor told him that. And then, the physio did for not have the a next portable two days, MRI we have to be dealing with ESPN and all the media on Novak Watch. Scarring the grounds. Is he playing? Will he play? Won't he play? <laughs> The countdown. Like, are you joking? He may not play against Raonich? Really? Did anyone believe that? And then, after the next match, being say, saying, well, I'm not going to talk about it. Like, well, dude, you caused all this speculation hmm. by saying that you had a tear, a muscle tear. Kokinakis made some comments on social media, which he then deleted, hmm. saying... Wow, like if this is a muscle tear and he's able to recover like that, he ne- I, he needs to teach me how to do it because I'm out for months when that happens to me. To be clear, I do not think that athletes owe us anything about their medical records, about what their their injuries are. But Djokovic is the one who put this out, out there. And for something that requires, for something that can have multiple meanings... And can connote many different things, as you've said, with the difference between a, a strain and a tear kind of being the same thing, but not really something that folks understand. This is how this story ran away from itself. Mm. And for me, it seems that unlike a lot of other tennis players, where, for example, the more calm there is on court, the better for Nadal, the more chaos on court, the more no- Novak thrives yeah yeah i think a lot of folks conflate operating in that chaos with being sinister and i don't think that's fair to him i think it's useful to understand like how he operates on court that you know like Mm -hmm. he's probably a little bit fine with folks wondering whether he's gonna be playing or not that's a motivating factor for Mm -hmm. him maybe i'm totally off base with that and i'm sure i'll have a lot of folks with opinions on that Honestly, like it it matches the the messaging that comes from his team. There's a lot of persecution going on, right? Even Isovich said today that we know that someone from above is watching over Novak and getting him through because he's so 
unfairly treated by everybody. It's just constant tribulation to be Novak. This is, I mean, this is clearly what motivates him and the team. And if that's it, fine. I'm not a fan of it, but go on. It's it's successful. And he is damn good. Like, that, that is the part that's so frustrating for me is that, you know, Novak Djokovic's tennis is incredible. Some of his returns in that final against Medvedev, where Daniel hits what he thinks is a boom-blasting serve that will be unreturned, is at his feet in seconds. I don't know. Like, it's, it's just so hard for me to sift sift through everything with Novak Djokovic. Mm. And, and when the events of the last year happen, I, I, it then becomes beyond my bandwidth to even try. <laughs> right. In the trophy presentation, the, uh, the chair of Tennis Australia, Jane Erlichka, who is gifted, she, she spoke longer than uh, I think both finalists yeah. combined in both the men's and women's. She mentioned uh, something about vaccines, and that got booed, which as I think was... As soon as she said the word vaccines, right, booed. I think it was surprising to everybody on the dais. Yeah. Craig Tiley looked really pissed off. Did you see him? And there was a man behind well, her. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you, like, the entire two weeks has been about how amazing he is. <laughs> right, And right. now there's this negativity when this should be his crowning mm-hmm. achievement. So they booed the vaccines, and then she mentioned something about the Victorian government. They booed that. I get that a little more. Like, boo your government. That's what they're there for, right? Governments should be scared of you, not the other way around. But the vaccine thing was funny because then everyone was saying, oh, Novak fans booed the vaccine. And I understand we don't know that, but I wonder why people made that correlation. Mm. Where did that connection come from? Like, I, I don't understand why fans are being so naive about that. He's put vaccine skeptic, almost anti-vax statements into the ether for a while now. Is it a long stretch to say that his fans would support that as well? Is it a long stretch to think that some of his fans would boo at the mere mention of vaccines because they then take it as a direct hit on Novak, <laughs> who has been the whipping boy in Australian media, Right. in Australian media, this entire lead up to the tournament? Like, they have not been kind to Novak. No. To our no. mind, justifiably so. <laughs> and, you know, maybe they got a, a little out of hand. Yeah. So, like, maybe they saw what was going on. It was like, no, you are not going to come for a boy like that. Like, you are clearly going after Novak. Mm. It was just... It is just constant wiggery and giggery and theatrics. And I understand I'm saying this as a Serena fan, so I get it. The cognitive dissonance. But... It's just not for me. Why don't we talk about doubles? Sure. We have a new number one team in women's doubles. For the first time, Mertens and Sabalenka are going to take over the top ranking. They beat uh, number three seed Krejcikova Siniakova, 6-2-6-3. This is their second slam together. They won the uh, 2019 US Open. And I saw someone tweeting, I can't remember who, that it was, it was rare to see top singles players in this draw. Which could be surprising because this is probably an Olympic year. And in Olympic years, you often see the top players trying to get some practice. Because they'll be playing for their country later on. But Sabalenka Mertens were, you know, one of the notable exceptions. Top singles players excelling in doubles. Mm-hmm. And we also heard that even though they'll be taking over number one ranking, they won't be playing as much together going forward. Because mm. Arena is going to be focusing more 
on her singles game. They'll still play some of the smaller tournaments on the circuit. Okay. But they won't be playing as much as they have in the past. Mm. Another uh, notable result from that draw, Goff and McNally beat the number six seeds Dabrowski and Maddox Sands earlier. And then they beat the number nine seeds Guarachi and Krawczyk. On the men's, Dodik and Polashek beat Rom and Salisbury, 6-3-6-4. Rajiv Ram was in both the men's and the mixed finals. Rajiv Ram will never have success in his career without Venus fans bringing up the 2016 Mixed Doubles final at the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. Every time his name pops up for doing something good in tennis, it's like, well, why didn't you bring that energy to that final? (laughs) He will never be forgiven by Venus fans. No, no. In that men's tournament as well, Ram and Salisbury beat Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez in the semifinals. If you recall, Suarez and Murray repaired. They returned to one another they spread their wings, they prepared to fly, and if if they were a butterfly, they'd come back together, and they did. <laughs> it wasn't one of my best no. with that one. Mm-mm. And the number one seeds, Cabal and Farah, lost in round two to the unseeded pair of Bublik and Golubev. In mixed, we had Krejcikova, who was in the women's doubles final, and Ram, who was the runner-up in the men's final. They paired to beat Sam Stozer and Matthew Ebden. 6-1-6-4. All the doubles finals were straight sets. Brom won his first slam here in 2019 with Krejcikova. This is their second one together. He wins his first men's doubles title last year at the same tournament. And now we have another mixed title for him. Krejcikova, this is her third straight Australian Open mixed doubles title. Mm-hmm. And she has five slams altogether. We shifted a bunch of topics from our mid-slammed episode to this one. So we had some odds and ends we wanted to talk mm. about. There are a couple main issues that we're going to address in this next segment that we've noticed from the tournament. And then we'll do like a, a speed round of some odds and ends. <laughs> the two things we're covering here are gambling and its takeover of tennis coverage, as well as Hawkeye Live. Yeah, so you may have noticed that DraftKings is a very prominent partner of Tennis Channel. The DraftKings desk, they talk a lot about betting odds and the DraftKings sports book on Tennis Channel. And it's jarring, right? Yeah. So up until a few years ago, to 2018, sports betting was illegal across most of the United States. In that year, the Supreme Court overturned the Bradley Act, which has made sports betting legal. DraftKings was actually the first company to capitalize on this. They were the first company to offer legal online sports betting. And they also do fantasy sports as well, obviously. So they're in this partnership with Tennis Channel. In addition to that, Sinclair, which owns Tennis Channel, they also own 188 local broadcast channels. That's news and sports. They own regional Fox Sports networks. Just a ton of, they're a huge conglomerate in broadcast. So Bally Sports and Sinclair have, unquote, unveiled a transformational partnership that will revolutionize the sports betting industry. So Sinclair's regional Fox Sports networks, there's 19 of them, will be rebranded Bally Sports SoCal, Bally Sports Great Lakes, etc. So this is an integration, a vertical integration of Bally's betting infrastructure with Sinclair's TV channels. And so Tennis Channel is one of those. So it's essentially to facilitate sports betting, offer 
odds, all these statistical things that you need to know in order to bet. I don't know. I don't bet. It's confusing to me. But, but yeah, you have the terminology being placed, product placed into the tennis coverage now. Yeah, yeah. Chris McKendry asking Brad Gilbert, so what are the odds of Jennifer Brady winning this? Right. Who cares? Like, <laughs> what happened to the IBM match facts thing? At one point, Darren Cahill pushed back because he was posed a question saying, you know, the, the odds makers say that so-and-so is the favorite for this match. Do you agree? And he's like, I, I wasn't aware that the odds makers were the experts here and that's yeah. who we're taking our, our cues from. It's like, why, why is Darren here? If the odds makers have already made the call. You have a, a, a sport that has created the tennis integrity unit in part to deal with doping issues, sure, but also to deal with match fixing. Mm-hmm. Match fixing is a huge, huge problem in tennis. Well, that, I mean, that was the impetus for the TIU. A few years ago, remember, it was the beginning of the season mm-hmm. and this bombshell report came out about match fixing on the lower levels of the sport. Mm. And the lower levels of the sport is where Karatsev played for the majority of his career till now. And I knew I'd heard his name before. And so I did some digging in like places that are not even in like the nether regions of of Twitter and like some <laughs> deep Google searches, some message mm. boards or whatever. And there are, there are folks who pay attention to patterns in sport betting. I am not here to tell you that Karatsev has fixed matches in the past. I'm here to tell you that there are many people who absolutely believe that he did. Right. And people talk about it as if everyone knows. Yeah, that, that so it's I... a known fact that everybody knows. Sometimes the better the, the betting companies, the betting sites, they won't even put some of his matches up for wager because they know what he gives. <laughs> like, again, this could all be speculation. Right, right. So I don't, I don't want to spread rumors that are not verified correct but that's what's being discussed yeah but can that be discussed in any way or looked into by tennis coverage that's sponsored and infiltrated by a betting company Mm -hmm. and like is this not a huge (laughs) conflict of interest right you're seeing this across a lot of sports DraftKings has partnerships with nfl major league baseball espn fox nascar since it the Bradley Act was overturned. This stuff has exploded. And of course, why wouldn't ma- huge media companies get in on this? Obviously, it means a lot of revenue from DraftKings, from Bally's. Like, we get it. We're not naive. These companies will not turn down money. Sinclair is not operating on this principle of in- integrity of journalism and broadcasting. It's not what they do. But like you said, how does the tennis channel so blatantly brand their desk with DraftKings, talk about betting odds. I mean, it's really like surrendering any pretense of being broadcast journalism, right? It's just, here are the matches, mm-hmm. here are the odds. But what if a story about Karatsev had broke mm-hmm. during it, this event? Well, it would not be covered on tennis channel. I, I just don't understand. But, you know, you can see this is where a lot of sports broadcasting is going. It's sort of surrendering that facade of this being a journalistic enterprise. It's not. It's a show. They're part of the whole sports entertainment machine. 
right? They're not here to cover the sport from any sort of objective lens. And so if, I mean, fans, most fans probably don't even want that anyway. They want to see the game. They want to see some former players, some broadcasters talk about it. They'd rather hear about the fair tale, right? (laughs) Right. It's It's just jarring because it's new. And I remember, you know, they had that bet something open in tennis that was shocking at the time to have a betting company sponsor a tournament. And now it's like, no big deal. No. And here are our players. Please DM them on Instagram. Tell them to kill themselves. Threaten their families because you lost a bet. We know players broadcast this stuff all the time. And so this is just sort of like a big fuck you to players. Right? Saying, we don't care. We're trying to make money from betting here. So can you shut up? Here are the odds for this match. Go place your bet. And then when player A loses that match, Mm. go into their DMs and tell them to kill themselves. (laughs) Right. The next somewhat big issue that we want to talk about is Hawkeye Live. If you've been watching the tennis channel or the ESPN coverage of the Australian Open, you'll probably have heard many, many, many presenters and commentators say, without interrogation, that, wow, isn't Hawkeye Live just dandy? (laughs) yeah okay so let's start with it's kind of a necessary adaptation because of covid reducing the number of people on court the number of people you have to bring into the bubble and quarantine and everything if it works it works the 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 weird thing is that it seems like every commentator as you said without interrogation is like players love this it's amazing period discussion over and I was just like, okay. What I'm seeing is a lot of players looking at balls that look pretty out to me, look out to them, and then realizing that they can't do shit about it. (laughs) So I think there's a conflation between being able to get on with it and players liking it. Right. It certainly does speed up the matches. Does it speed it up that much? A little. A little. That much? But not, not really that much. I've always said that players are going to find a way to complain regardless of the technology. If this is presented as a foolproof, this is the most accurate reading, players are still going to complain about it, right? It's a pressure valve. They need something to release tension, and they're going to find a way to relieve that tension somewhere. And often it's about line calls or time violations and stuff like that. The thing with Hawkeye Live is, like, isn't it still Hawkeye? that has a small margin of error? Do we know for a fact that it's 100% correct all the time? We know that it's not 100% (laughs) correct all the time. And so there is no challenging or questioning of Hawkeye Live's accuracy. Mm -hmm. They can ask to watch the replay that will confirm the the call, but there will be no overturns. We're told that it's accurate. How many times did you hear anybody discuss the difference between Hawkeye Live and Fox 10? Right. Or where those inaccuracies may lie and what is the history of of this technology? It's all framed and boiled down to, well, the players can't challenge it, so it's great. Everybody (laughs) just has to move on. Right. Listen, this is, to me, this is a discussion for the players and the leaders of the sport. For fans... We'll, we'll take whatever, right? This isn't about the integrity of 
the umpiring of the sport, which affects players mostly. So it's something that a union should be discussing, if such a union exists. We haven't heard any discussions of how Hawkeye Live affects the umpires. Right. So We've had some players speculate that, well, they don't have to be focusing on line calls anymore. So they're just honed in on the shot clock. They're just honed in on this one or two specific things that then make the players feel targeted. Mm. They're not honed in on coaching. I'll tell you that. I mean, there's always a lot of stuff going on in court, but rarely is coaching called. We don't hear how the removal of lines umpires from the court could affect the umpiring stream right. in the future. So how do you become a skilled umpire if those jobs are gone? You don't just one day apply and do, sit in the chair. Do you create a secondary training stream? Do you create a new program whereby umpires rise through the ranks? Are you sacrificing the quality of a future umpires by implementing a system like Hawkeye Live permanently? Mm. And also, it's expensive. Not every tournament is going to have it. But you are impacting hundreds of people's jobs around the world. And I understand, obviously, that technology makes certain jobs obsolete all the time. This is the the force of capitalism. And sometimes we just have to deal with it. It's just more to it than what it's being presented to us as. Where one commentator says, Oh boy, what do you think about Hawkeye Live? I love it. Oh yeah, I love it. And the players seem to universally love it. Like, that passes no sniff test. Where is the empirical evidence? This is why... Who has been spoken to? If you're going just by what you've seen on the court, that alone doesn't pass the eye test because we're seeing two different things. Mm. So why is it being presented to me as fact? Like, I reject that. Sports broadcasting is not journalism. Sure. Mm. But certainly there's a little bit more rigor than that. I mean... Um, It's fair to expect it. But we will be continually disappointed. I would I would say if we're going to keep this Hawkeye Live thing, I think it would be nice to have some kind of visual element added to it. So for anyone, but especially for people with hearing impairment, for example, maybe light up a part of the court, have some kind of icon or symbol come up on the screen to indicate that a ball is out. I think that would be a nice addition if, you know, if we're going to go with this permanently. And in... This case, the specific case of the Australian Open, the organizers tried to do a nice thing to honor some of the first responders to the bushfires and the COVID-19 crisis in Australia and have their voices being the recorded voices for faults Mm. and outs when Hawkeye renders its decision. What we saw, especially in the first week, is that a lot of these calls, and I think because of this added element to the system, were a little bit delayed. And we're talking about like less than a second in some instances, maybe a second here or there. But it makes a whole lot of difference to how it's received by the players on court. Let's speed through these odds and ends. The WTA was hosting another event during the second week of the Australian Open for players who didn't reach the second week. Sophia Kennan turned out to be the number one seed in that tournament. She had lost to Kaya Kanepi early on. And so we get to this Phillip Island trophy, which is hosted on the same site as the Australian Open. And Sophia goes out to Australian wildcard Olivia Gadecki in a very surprising result. And then 
shortly after that, we found out she went to the hospital to get her appendix removed. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> then literally... shortly thereafter, she was at the, what was it, the women's... The Serena Naomi Matt, the, semi. the semifinal, yes. It was very quick. I, I realize the appendectomy is not a massive medical intervention, but she had surgery. And she went straight to Serena Naomi after that. She was also in the uh, in the stands for the men's final. That girl loves tennis. We know that. She was out on uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium constantly during the U.S. Open. When the players had their own suites. Yeah. Daria Kazarkina won that Phillip Island trophy, which, you know, I've always been a big fan of her with her through these struggles. And she wins the event in, in really an impressive run, beating... Pavlyuchenkova, Petra Martic, Danielle Collins, and then Boskova in the final. Her first title since the end of 2018, actually. Mm-hmm. This was also the event that Bianca Andreescu made the semifinals, and then subsequent to that, we learn that she's got some lower body issues, mm-hmm. some leg in- injuries that she's sustained from playing in Melbourne, both events, and that she's pulled out of a couple events going forward. Yeah, so she's out of Doha. So, I don't know. We we don't have any inside info about Bianca. Yeah, great to see Dasha playing well again. Because it was... For what we know about her talents and how we've seen her play well in the past, it was so distressing to watch that shell of a player mm. the last couple of years. And to have her playing well again is yet another player to look out for going forward on the WTA Tour. Yeah, We also had a bit of a... A commentary crisis, as per usual, when it came to issues of race. Howard Bryant made a great point on Twitter the other day. Of the tennis commentariat, he says, They're walking on ice, downhill, in the wind. The game is changing. Who plays it is changing. What the players say is changing. But who is doing the commentary does not. He also comments about how when... Osaka won the women's final. Tennis Australia chairwoman, Ms. Jane, is mm-hmm. that who she was? Yeah. She gave a lot of, she gave a speech with a lot of flowery, nice things. But she also danced around the actual work that Naomi Osaka has been doing. Howard Bryant said, quote, I love the word dance of lauding Osaka for, quote, changing the world and making us, quote, think about the world we live in without mentioning the word race. It's truly a skill. Mm-hmm. We saw this last year with... Uh the co-opting of the anti-racism movement as social, what was it? Social inequality? Social inequity, mm-hmm. social, social justice issues. Right. There was a removal of the word race. and But we found that a lot of the commentators cannot really, I mean, the other option is to inject race into it and they're not much better there. Anyway, at any rate, Patrick McEnroe, who had a complete shit show of a tournament, during one of the early round matches where ESPN cut to Michael Moe on one of the outer courts. For just a brief spell, it wasn't very long, Michael Moe is now on the ESPN coverage, and so naturally it was time to talk about how his father being Nigerian and his mother being Irish was, quote, an interesting mix between his parents, according to Patrick McEnroe. Mm -hmm. To which I wanted to know, what is specifically interesting about this right nobody will ask why is that interesting like oh (laughs) wow you're half japanese you're half what interesting Mm -hmm. this is 
I mean, this is in a way dehumanizing. It looks at a, a mix of people as if they're breeds of dogs, you know? Yeah. Like, what is interesting about these two people meeting and having a child? What does it say about Michael? Can you add anything of insight into this, please? Other than it just being you commenting on the fact that he's a product of an interracial union. Right. Which is ex- it's not new. extremely common. It's not new. It's just not as common in this sport. And so what we're seeing here is just how casually the white gaze, in this case the white male gaze, is the lens through which we take in tennis. Right? There was no utility in us learning that fact. No. Um, well, I should say, it wasn't totally useless, but it was not presented in a useful way. Stop comparing black athletes to animals. Yeah. Uh, I mean, anyone, really. But I feel that this should be obvious now. It is clear that Black Lives Matter and the anti-racist movement is a fad for most of the people who are not affected directly by it. And a lot of the commentators didn't learn shit. It's depressing. I don't remember who the commentator was at this point, but one commentator during the Venus-Irani match, when she refused to, to retire in that match, compared Venus to Boxer the Horse from Animal Farm. <laughs> I'm, I don't mean to laugh because it's funny. It's just like we've been hearing a lot of Orwellian lately, and this person actually was able to identify a character in an Orwell book. Don't. Like, just resist the urge, please. It was. I realize it was meant as a compliment, but it's not. Alexis Ohanian came all the way for Jan Tyriak at this tournament. <laughs> you and I were actually on two sides of this, because my initial reaction was to feel like, okay, Alexis, can you stay out of this? Or, or that your intervention isn't really helping, mm-hmm. because I've always felt that Serena can speak for herself, and that she, you know... It's interesting now to see Serena as a couple. You know, she's a she's a partner to this white man, and he feels compelled to get involved and defend his wife, and he's learning. That's the other thing, yeah. is that Serena's fans know way more about Serena's tennis life. Yes. Like, obviously, he knows Serena the person, mm-hmm. but the fans know so much more about what she's been through on the tennis court. And a lot of them feel like they know her better than he does, <laughs> and they view him as an outsider, because he is white. Right, right. And if he were a black man, they would have no problem with him coming to her defense. They would expect that of him. But because he's white, somehow he's seen as still some kind of an outsider in black people's business. That's the read that I get from how Alexis is treated by some of of the army. Mm. And fine, like... That's the small price that you pay for being a white person and from benefiting from being a white person. Like, skepticism is not, mm. you know, it's not a hardship. My problem with Alexis is that so much of his Twitter personal persona seems performative to me. Mm. I don't buy it. And so it became incessant at a point where, like, a lot of his tweets were, were pick-me type bullshit. <laughs> and so I had to unfollow. It, it just wasn't for mm. me. Mm. And so coming it from... Coming at this from that perspective, I still thought that he was entirely right about going after Tyriac and continuing to do so. Because you might say that Serena can defend herself, and that's absolutely right. And she absolutely tore Simona Halep apart in that quarterfinal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Simona Halep being a, a somewhat of a surrogate for Jan Tyriak. Well, unfortunately, I mean, she has allowed herself to be associated with him. Mm-hmm. Calls him a mentor, like, fair or not. To be clear, Simona Halep played a good match. She did not play poorly in that mm-hmm. match. But, you know, Serena brought it. So you might want to look at that match and say, well, that was Serena speaking on it. Right. If you want, maybe, fine. Maybe. We, you know she's tried to make statements on court before. She often plays well when she's motivated by anger or resentment. But then Alexis had more to say. Right. He, Well, Tyriac's son wrote kind of this treatise about how it's unfair to call his father racist and sexist. And uh, what's her face? Serana Kirstea, who was apparently engaged to this man. Very tight, right? In the Romanian sporting <laughs> community. It is a small world. And she was liking his sweets and everything since unliked because people found it. Uh, but Alexis was calling Tyriac racist and sexist very openly. And it's, uh, you know, I thought about it. And Richard used to be that person, right? It hasn't always been Venus and Serena on their own, making statements on their own. For a long time, Richard was that person who would call people out, who would call people racist would come to their defense. And, you know, I can't see that if Serena was uncomfortable with her husband doing that, that he would continue to do it. Well, that's that's my where I yeah. am as well. That's yeah. her business. Right. That's their business. If she wants to get him to stop, she will get him to stop. What I want is for this light to continue to be shined on Jan Tyriac yes. because he is a stain, a scourge. He is an abomination in tennis. <laughs> And the thing is, like, it's not frivolous because he is actually a very powerful figure in the sport. Exactly. Right? It's not just, like, some random person. No. He's a tournament director. As his son points out, he's a deeply embedded part of the tennis establishment Mm -hmm. for decades. He has deep ties to legendary players across generations. Anyway, we also spend some time learning exactly what the term locals mean when it comes (laughs) to, for us... Being on tennis Twitter, mm-hmm. but I guess being on Twitter in general. Yeah. So the word locals is used to describe people who are sort of the general population. So if you're on tennis Twitter, locals are people who don't really follow tennis, but are commenting on things that maybe they don't fully understand. And for me, it was con- it was confusing because I, I kind of intuitively thought, well, if somebody's a local, then they have local knowledge of something. So if tennis twitter is more intimate than twitter then shouldn't they be the locals and then the other people who are being doofuses Mm. and helicoptering in shouldn't they be the foreigners right i don't know where the term came from it's definitely like an internet terminology it's kind of rude sometimes and it seems a little bit classist if i'm being honest but when serena starts winning at tournaments and people start to notice people who don't normally follow tennis you always start to see these just really dumb off-base tweets people who didn't want to watch the match didn't really understand what was going on people and are trying can't, to they're just trying to tweet for clout people who still can't tell venus and serena apart right and so you see oh sabalenka smashed her racket and look compare this to the 2018 u.s open final like oh my god are you serious can we not can you just go away and then people just making up complete lies about what happened in the match to get retweets. It's very, very tiresome. There was also, uh, speaking of diversity in tennis and how it's covered. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, this is this is diversity. Two white players, but from different parts of the United States. That is diversity. My stars. CC Bellis and Tennis Sandgren are getting this. I don't know what the hell the show is. Like the real life or something like that. They've had. (laughs) They've a man and a woman. They've had this diversity built into the Mm. ethos of the show for years now. They've had one ATP player, one WTA player do this tennis channel series throughout a season. So they pick two at the start of the year and then you follow them throughout the season. Mm-hmm. This season at the Australian Open on a tennis channel segment, we were told that CC Bellis and Tennis Sandgren would be the stars of this season. <laughs> right. Um, so- and so John Wertheim and Martina Navratilova are left to then talk about mm-hmm. it. So Martina talked about CC for a little while. She, she took the mic first and she's like, listen, I'm going to get my piece in. I'm going to talk about CeCe Bellis and then the rest she, is up to you, John. She did not acknowledge the other player. She talked about how CeCe likes to bake and etc. L. John said, this is, quote, a nice bit of diversity, unquote. Man, woman, camera, person, TV, sandwich, no, he, microwave. You're making a joke, here, but he literally said, we've got no, a man and a woman. But it was like... It was the cognitive test. It was man, woman, person, camera. Blah, 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 blah. It was so bizarre from L. John, who is... Sure, but I'm saying he literally said there's a man and a woman. I know. As what the diversity is. And then explained that they were from two different states in yeah. the United States. Tennis Sangren, he's going to say yes, okay? Like, if you're offering to put a camera in front of him and put him on TV, he is going to say yes. Clearly, that's where this came from. What the hell? What the hell are you doing? I am so glad we do not get this channel in Canada because I would be mad every day. The whole segment from the announcement to how it was talked about felt like they were like Tennis Channel and Sinclair were just playing in our faces. (laughs) Sometimes I think maybe we live in an alternate reality. Like maybe Tennis Channel is normal and we're the abnormal ones. To be pondered. (laughs) Actually, no, I'm not pondering that. Gem's life, guys, they are on a break. Gail Mofi's announced it on his Instagram stories. They have taken a break before, and they've gotten back together. I don't know what's best for each. I We I don't hope, know them. I hope whatever is the best for each is what happens. If this is what they need, great for them. I'm sad to see the end of Gem's life, but, you know, it's not our life. <laughs> it's what? Gem's life. Exactly. Yeah. Gems has to worry about gems. Farewell to Nicole Gibbs, who retires from tennis, announces that she's retired mm-hmm. from tennis. She said that she'd uh, made this decision a while back, but she, she's the type of person that doesn't want to announce it until she has a plan going forward. And yeah. so she re-enrolled into Stanford and finished her last year, and she's applying to law school. So good for her. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the fashions. Yes. Finally. The uh, the Nike color block polo shirts. I feel like it's been quite a long time since I saw them because, because those players yeah, lost. That's true. I was a big fan of those. I was a big yes. fan of that iteration. I was a big fan of the Henley version. Mm-hmm. I thought Taylor Fritz. That's the most interesting he's ever looked on a tennis court. Yes. I'm not saying he still wore it. I'm not saying that he wore it well per se, but it looked the best he's ever looked. <laughs> There was a lot of uh, deep purple, dark green, gold. 
I just I liked the color palette a lot because it got away from that day glow that we often mm-hmm. see in Australia. The Nike dresses for the women, the ones with the asymmetrical skirt, very cute. They were extremely flattering on everyone. Andrescu and, looked amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, the thing with Nike kits for women, they often, they're not cut right. You know, they often bunch in weird places. It's like they're not created for each person's body or they're not tailored properly. These dresses, everybody looked good. Like Alina Svitolina um, debuted it while they were still in quarantine. I mean, she looks like a baddie. Like a baddie? Yeah. <laughs> she looked amazing. Of course, can't talk about the fashions at the Australian Open without mentioning Serena's Flojo inspired one legged bodysuit. Mm-hmm. We <clears throat> talked about last episode. Tanasi Kokonakis's uh, Kmart look. Mm-hmm. I actually loved it. Yes. Absolutely loved it. When he it. wore the all black, very much mm-hmm. into it. The shorts, can all athletic manufacturers copy the cut on those shorts? Right. Perfect length. He's not a short dude, but still managed to have this proportion. Mm-hmm. Perfect. The The simplicity just worked. The red, white, and blue shorts, that one, yeah. looked... It was giving Tommy Hilfiger vibes, <laughs> which... Contributed a, a, a smidge to a bit of basicness for a tennis kit, but those are classic colors, mm-hmm. and they fit. Mm-hmm. That's the important part. Like you can elevate the actual clothes if they fit properly. Alexander Zverev, talking about playing in our face. Wait, we're still on the good side, aren't we? Sure, sure. I'm getting to it. <laughs> okay. Talking about playing in our faces, he debuts in this absolute abomination. I mean. The color, the cut, everything. Drab. The color looked unwashed. <laughs> it looked like you've worn a shirt, you've left it wet in the hamper for a few days, and then you decide to wear it again. And then you put it on your little brother. Yeah. It, it was... <sighs> it was a weird choice to go sleeveless. I'll just say that. We're not trying to body shame people here. It just didn't work. On the other hand... We just don't like him. There's also that. (laughs) I mean, multiple things, hello. (laughs) On the other hand, though, where this becomes a good look is on Michael Moe. Wow. Because you saw that. You saw what I did there. Mm -hmm. And so Alexander Zverev wears this in an unimaginable way. And you're just done with it. (laughs) And then you see Michael Moe in it and you're like, well, hello there. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, this is not a credit to the kit because the kit objectively is not good but michael mo clearly can wear the hell out of damn near anything <laughs> the let's talk about dennis's baby blue satin pajama look i actually put that in the middle mm. of yes or mess because i think it merits a discussion originally i thought it was terrible i'm growing to like it initially i thought it was amazing oh I'm growing to like it less. So, see, we put it in the perfect place. It actually is in the We're right We're meeting place. in the middle. But it is also one of his better looks that he's worn. <laughs> Something that's actually interesting to look at. The shorts fit. I don't think that the shorts that he wears necessarily fit him well, mm. historically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm maybe saying. that's what he likes. Like, maybe that's what's comfortable for him while playing. Yeah. And so this time, he looked a lot better from the hip down, drip down. <laughs> The drip down hip down? Yeah, yeah, I like that callback. (laughs) 
The only other kit that we put squarely in the mess category, I'm so sorry, like, forgive us, please, was Naomi's. I, I talked about this on our Twitch session. I haven't committed it to a real podcast yet, but oh my god, I hate it so much. I don't hate it as much <laughs> as you do. I think the jacket is cute. The jacket is cute. When she yes. wears it after winning with the jacket, a lot cuter. I, I just, I guess my major objection is just the orange skirt. Like, I don't, I don't see why it's needed. It would have been better with, like, like an orange belt. Do you know what I mean? Like but a, then it just would have been a leotard. Okay, what's wrong with that? Okay, I mean, Serena wore a bodysuit. Fine. Yeah, what's wrong with that? It was just, it's just a weird, I don't know. I liked it. the the army print. There are parts of the both of that I liked. Yeah, mm. but with the, the skirt for me was where it just didn't work. Well, it just, it looks like a bodysuit and you, like, slap the skirt on. Mm-hmm. You know, like a... It looked like a tutu. Right. And let's not even go there. Never want to see another tutu in my life. <laughs> quote tutu. Oh, quote ablo. Is that where you went? Exactly. Okay. But you know what? Tennis Twitter has conjured this this thing about a slam winning kit, mm-hmm. saying this is not a slam winning kit. And, and into clearly, it? we know that is that does not exist. This kit won a slam. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no such thing as a slam-winning kit or not. There's mm-hmm. just one that you like or one you don't. Well, people want their faves to win and of also course. like what we they have, look like. I mean, we have Serena on the wall in 2013 French Open with that amazing kit. Everything about her, the eye makeup, the headband, everything works, right? That is a slam-winning kit. But she also won slams and kits we don't like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Naomi can go on winning... In whatever the hell she wants to wear. I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. I, for one, am thrilled that the tennis, the at least the Australian Open, is done for now. Yeah. Um, it was it was very taxing on me. My sleep schedule was well and truly fucked. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't want people to think I'm not doing the work because, like, <laughs> I I put I put the shit on tape like it's 1994. And I do rewatch the matches just at a normal. Oh, you put it on tape. Yeah, at a normal time of day. Mm-hmm. Like I work nine to five. I can't be you waking up be at three thirty. I'm just saying. You know, I don't want people to think I'm totally tuned out. I'm not interested because it's not interesting. But I am still watching. To you. To me. <laughs> but I'm still watching. Look out for the next time we come to you. Will probably be a Twitch. I'm working on a bunch of named the tennis players. I think that's what I want to, to focus the next Twitch on around. It oh, okay. That sounds very dynamic. Uh, it can be. Oh, okay. Get All creative, right. girl. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We're at the Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram. Find us on Spotify, Overcast, Apple, everywhere. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.